We now know that the universe is alive and indeterminate, right? And that everything everywhere is in constant non-linear flux. But we've come to the limits of what we can do within a worldview that doesn't match the way the world actually works. With the acceleration of change, the need to constantly adapt and innovate in a creative economy requires that we start going with the grain of the universe. This paragraph is from Gwen Gordon, quoted from Matters Journal, January 31, 2018. And she's not talking about climate change, but she could be. Her context is actually about the concept of play and creativity, and the article is called The Future of Work is Play. But her words work for me in any capacity. Within the context of change, I've been thinking about that word regenerative. It's become for me a bit of a hold-all term for whatever is coming, as the old model gives way to something else. And we are coming to a tipping point, aren't we? This week, I pulled together and was sent information related to reactions to climate change and connected them to a radio show on the fall of the Berlin Wall. The episode, The Year No One Saw It Coming, was a revelation. Here's how the events unfolded. The spark that lit a bomb under the wall, so to speak, occurred at a press conference held on November the 9th, 1989, when a Communist Party apparatchik Gunter Schabowski fronted the press. This was after a state conference held a month into a new-look East German Politburo. He read from a press release written for him and until then not cited, outlining what was meant to be a minor loophole allowing disgruntled citizens freedom to travel. These changes had been hastily created and legislated to make it easier for the thousands of East Germans who had sought refuge in West German embassies in Eastern Europe to migrate to the West. The idea was to release and then to deny return to these most annoying of complainants. But there was enough ambiguity in the statement that it was heard by a stunned group of reporters as direct permission for all citizens to travel freely through the wall, this freedom to be implemented immediately. Within minutes of this news hitting the airways, a few dozen people arrived at a key checkpoint with their passports, demanding to pass through. The word spread, the crowd swelled until there were 10,000 people on foot, in cars, on bicycles, and they kept on coming. The senior passport controller, Herr Jaeger, a long-time and loyal member of the Stasi, was frantic. Already shell-shocked by what he had heard on the news, he rang and kept on ringing his superiors looking for direction. It was reported that over the four hours these events unfolded, he rang his superiors 30 times. He was told repeatedly and unhelpfully that nothing had changed and he was to repel all comers. Business as usual. In the face of an excited and entitled mass of citizens, Herr Jaeger, at his wit's end, eventually decided to allow a handful of people through, cleverly directing his men to stamp the passports in such a way that they would recognise these most eager of leavers and deny them re-entry. But things didn't quite work out like that. Within four hours of the press release, the few became a flood and the wall was swept away. 
Miraculously, no one was hurt and no shots were fired. No one predicted this. In no one's wildest dreams was this going to happen. It was a miracle of accidental happenstance. The wall, of course, fell within the context of seismic shifts of the superpowers. Gorbachev was a different kind of leader, the first to contemplate a restructuring of the Russian Empire and to engage in relationships with the West and unwilling to repress his own people. Hungary and Poland, facing their own internal problems, followed the leader. East Germany and Czechoslovakia, on the other hand, were appalled by the development set in motion by Gorbachev and maintained a hard line. Meanwhile, the demands from citizens calling for freedom to travel were escalating. From peaceful candlelit demonstrations at a church in Leipzig to violent demonstrations in Dresden, a shift was taking place that would feed into the events of that extraordinary November night. And from the political to the personal, Herr Jaeger's situation was an important factor in the unfolding drama. The night the wall came down, he was waiting for news of medical tests he had undertaken to see if he had cancer. The combination of an impatient, entitled mob, lack of direction, perceived disrespect from his superiors, plus his own precarious mindset, was enough to him to throw off the habit of obedience developed over 25 years of blameless service. He stepped aside and allowed East Berliners to cross into West Berlin. As a corollary, most of them came back because the kids were at home in their jammies. The fridges had food in them because they had work the next day, because they just wanted to have a look. And as it turns out, Herr Jaeger didn't have cancer and is still alive today. So why am I talking about this? Because I see the parallels to today. Things are moving so fast the feeling of events out of control with fires literal and metaphoric are precipitating enormous economic and environmental change, enough to feed the sense of a tipping point. Here's a quick rundown of recent reporting under the loose heading of climate change effects. The future of coal has already been decided in boardrooms around the globe. This a headline from January 28th gleaned from an ABC news report. Early in December, as fire swept across large parts of the East Coast and South Australia, a major bank revealed it had formulated a plan to shed 75% of their thermal coal loans within the next four years. ANZ, the biggest lender to the coal industry in Australia, thus brought themselves into line with the Commonwealth and the National Australia Banks. In mid-December, investment bank Goldman Sachs ruled out future coal financing either for new mines or power stations globally. And then in January 2020, the world's biggest investment house, BlackRock, announced it was drastically reducing its exposure to thermal coal. And this isn't about activism or environmental thinking. The reason global financiers are turning their backs on coal is because there's no longer a buck to be made from it. Given Australia ships about $30 billion of thermal coal a year and around the same in metallurgical coal, the stakes are high. Then this. Recently, the Bank of International Settlements, the governing body of the world's central banks, including Reserve Bank, put out a paper entitled Green Swan, warning central banks that bad loans on power stations and mines could spark the next financial crisis, 
blah, 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 it goes on. This is possibly old news to those of you interested in this topic, but bear with me. Here is some commentary from Paul Gilding's paper, Climate Contagion 2020 to 2025. And again, I'm cutting and pasting to the chase. And I'll use his info about investment in Queensland and WA as a case in point about what big capital is thinking. In November 2019, Sweden's central bank announced that to manage the economic consequences of climate change, it will reject bonds that have a large climate footprint. As a result, bonds issued by the Canadian province of Alberta and the Australian states of Queensland and West Australia were sold. Mr Gilding gives us a quick rundown on the Swedish bank's thinking regarding Queensland. Queensland's economy is heavily focused on coal mining, which is now in global decline, and agriculture, which is suffering successive droughts. Tourism around its natural wonders, including the Great Barrier Reef, which may not survive, and tropical rainforests now burning. Lastly, the warm beachfront lifestyle that is highly attractive to retirees is now under threat from rising sea level, and could be slashed in value and become uninsurable. Paul's conclusion, Queensland, beautiful one day, too risky the next. So it begins. Economy is heavily focused on coal mining, which is now in global decline. Agriculture, which is suffering successive droughts. Tourism around its natural wonders, including the Black Great Barrier Reef, Tourism around its natural wonders, including the Great Barrier Reef, which may not survive, and tropical rainforests, now burning. Lastly, a warm beachfront lifestyle that is highly attractive to retirees, but whose waterfront property is now threatened by sea level rise and could become uninsurable. Paul's conclusion? Queensland, beautiful one day, too risky the next. And so it begins. Now for some really good news. Not about fleeing the dangers, but turning and facing them head on. In January, recently, Microsoft's Carbon Program Manager Elizabeth Wilmot announced that not only is Microsoft in alignment with the IPCC Directive, that's the International Panel of Climate Change, to be carbon negative by 2030, they will also remove their historical emissions from 1975, the year the company was formed. And that's a carbon debt calculated to be 24 million tonnes. They, Microsoft, will be working to help stimulate the carbon economy, looking at engineered and natural climate solutions. The latter meaning the bits regen ad advocates like myself favour. Soil sequestration, reforestation, mangrove, wetlands restoration, the drawdown. Ms Wilmot said, and I quote, she is both thrilled and sobered by the executive decision handed down from Microsoft's management. They're clearly prepared to go above and beyond the legislative requirements. And let's face it, these huge tech companies need to be on board. One, they are buoyant enough financially to go there. And two, if the lights go out, so do they. If you can't plug in a tech gadget, they won't work. And puff go all the billions and all that sneaked money printing data. You get where I'm going with this. 
it is becoming self-defeating not to do a 180 or some other kind of swing towards the carbon economy if you're in business in these times. Microsoft won't be the first big company looking closely at the environmental and economic changes rattling our planet. These two words, fiduciary duties, have quietly appeared and taken their rightful place in the courts. A fiduciary duty, words so new to me I can barely pronounce them, is a central tenet for all corporations handling other people's money and is defined as, thanks Wikipedia, the legal obligation of one party to act in the best interest of another. The obligated party is typically a fiduciary, that is, someone entrusted with the care of money or property. All of a sudden, the idea that corporations have a legal obligation to their investors and shareholders to mitigate the economic risks being exposed by environmental threats are starting to seem like actionable problems. Here's something else. Let's call it Mark and Goliath, found on the Environmental Justice Australia website. In 2017, 23-year-old Mark McVeigh filed a legal action alleging the trustee of his retirement fund, which is REST, the Retail Employees Superannuation Trust, breached the fiduciary duties owed to him by failing to adequately consider climate change risks. Mark, like all working Australians, must contribute money to superannuation, but he was having trouble finding out exactly what was being done to protect his money by the trustees of this $50 billion fund. The trial's listed for July this year, and it will be a landmark case expected to set a climate risk precedent that will determine the duties of superannuation trustees over climate change and reverberate around the globe. You're getting the drift. Doing nothing isn't a great idea, and the Berlin Wall reminds us how the most impregnable of barriers can crumble through a random set of factors no one can predict or invent. And if the wall didn't work for you is a great analogy for big change, how about some of those twisty plots in one of my all-time favourite crime writers, Elmore Leonard's books? He specialised in moving characters around on the page in random, unexpected directions, like... A guy leaves a briefcase full of money at a designated place. It gets picked up by another bloke who wants a briefcase for reasons that have nothing to do with that bad guy or that money and sets in motion a chaotic chain of events. So there you have it. The mechanistic universe cracks forming all over the joint. Now let's start creating life based on the understanding that the universe is, as I mentioned to begin with, alive, indeterminate, and where everything, everywhere, is in constant non-linear flux. Gwen Gordon, Muppet creator and generally a live person, continues, In a mechanistic universe, it makes sense to run businesses with a focus on efficiency, performance and productivity. But we've come to the limits of what we can do within a worldview that doesn't match the way the world actually works. The funny thing is that this is not what we're teaching our kids. I know this because I heard a David Blair being interviewed on the radio. 
He is a University of WA professor and physicist working on methods for the detection of gravitational waves. Now, he has been developing a curriculum that will introduce children to the concepts of quantum or Einsteinian physics, the very stuff that informs Gwen Gordon's rich approach to life. But this just alerted me to the fact that current curriculums must be tuned into the old world physics. And what must that be doing to our children's minds? Talk about misdirection. It's like enforced obsolescence, the opposite of education. I rang Professor Blair up and we had a chat. Basically, I wanted to know how hard it would be to get the concepts of quantum physics across to adults. He answered without hesitation, really hard compared with how quickly kids pick it up. And I'll add a link to a four-day free event the good professor and his mob are offering to teachers and educators in mid-Feb at UWA to get their head around this new curriculum. Professor Blair joins the haloed ranks of regenerative thinkers. There you have it. Change happening on every level, helping the good ship planet Earth and all who sail on her to find ways of being that start going with rather than against the grain of the universe.